What's up, everybody? I'm Mike Wilson with Any Hour Services, and we're proud to help bring you this podcast. If you ever need a resource for information about your home's electrical, plumbing, heating, or air conditioning system, you can find Any Hour Services on Facebook, YouTube, or online at anyhourservices.com. The Starlight Lounge presents An Evening with the Progressive Box. The moon, yeah. That's Hugo, tickling the ivories. He just saved by bundling home and auto with Progressive. Gonna finally buy a ring for that gal of yours, Hugo? Send him my condolences. Hi-oh! This next one's for you, too. There's a burglar in my heart. Thank you. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Discounts not available in all states or situations. Welcome to Myland Advisors. This is our ideation collective podcast called Innovation and Leadership. Today on the show, I've got Adam with Helix Sleep. You know, someone comes to me and says, I, I really want to start testing out a marketing channel. So we're going to put $500 into Facebook. And then they do that and then it doesn't work. And then they say, okay, Facebook doesn't work for us. And that's just not how you really should approach that problem. And But the alternative is that you have to just be willing to put more chips on the table, essentially. This is another episode of our Innovation and Leadership series where we interview pro athletes, world-class musicians, CEOs, Hollywood filmmakers, and a wide variety of other high achievers. Before we get rolling, I want to invite you to get involved with Child Rescue, the charity our founders started. To learn more about them, just come to our website, iCollective.co, and check on the Child Rescue tab on our menu. Also, I want to talk to you about one of our show's sponsors. I met these guys back on Episode 6. CEO Zach Smith was telling me all about starting a skateboard company and how much he hated doing the bookkeeping uh, for a skateboard shop and how he really... Uh, got led to start this business, Bookly, that's a hybrid combining bookkeeping software and human services. And I'll tell you why I let them become a sponsor. It's because I use their service now. I don't love paying 50 bucks an hour for bookkeepers to do stuff that I know software could do way, way cheaper. But uh, I don't love bookkeeping at all. So I want a real live human who knows what they're talking about to help me with the stuff I don't understand. Uh, probably the straw that broke the camel's back for me, though, the thing that put me over the top was that they could do my taxes and payroll also. Um, so totally suggest checking them out. Go to their website, bookly.co, and check out their flat rates. I've been super happy with them. So now on to today's episode. So Adam, thanks for making time. Uh, tell us about Helix. Yeah, absolutely. So Helix Sleep is a direct-to-consumer uh, sleep company, essentially what we do is we aim to bring personalization to the sleep category through individually customized, custom-built mattresses made for individuals or couples. And so what that means from a consumer perspective is you come to our website, helixsleep.com, and fill out a quick quiz. So essentially questions on things like your body types, your height and your weight, uh, your sleeping preferences. So do you sleep on your side or your back or your stomach? Do you get hot at night or do you get cold? or questions on your mattress preference. So do you prefer something a little bit firmer or softer? And then based on your answers to those questions, we basically optimize a mattress for you and then custom build it and ship it directly to your doorstep. And so we do that for individuals, but also couples. So if you're two people, we can make one bed where the left side is personalized to one person and the right side is personalized to the other person. That's awesome. What, what kind of price points are we talking about? Like what's the range? Yeah so, yeah, so because we go, you know, we sell direct to consumer, we're able to sell a really premium product at a more affordable price point. And so our queen mattress uh, retails for less than $1,000. And that at a retail store, uh, just based on sort of the high quality materials that we use, would be closer to about $3,000. Wow, that's awesome. So um, thinking about this category, you know, we've been talking already 
Um, tell us a bit about um, your decision-making process of, hey, this is what you and your co-founders wanted to do. Absolutely. So, you know, I met my two co-founders while I was at business school. We had all moved to a new city and gone through the process of, of actually buying a mattress. So we really were the consumers that felt the pain on the consumer end. You know, I ended up walking into a retail store and spending an embarrassing amount of money on a mattress. One of my partners tried to order online and really couldn't figure it out. Another guy bought it from a discount retailer and really was unhappy with the quality of the product. Um, and we started to think through, you know, is this a category where this, this really resonates with, with others? And we asked a ton of our friends. We went out, did a lot of research and really found that, that, that there was something there. You know, one, could we really improve on a lot of the pain points in the category, namely really high price points, really poor uh, consumer buying experiences. You know, I think we saw a, a study once that said that people actually prefer buy, pr- prefer going to the dentist than actually buying a mattress, which is a little bit shocking. Um, and then the third was really, uh, really confusion around the product itself. So why am I spending another $100 for this type of gel? Or what is this bed versus this bed? And we really saw that there was a lot there from a um, product and, and brand perspective and ended up really diving in and doing a lot of research. And so we, we researched it in, in depth, tons of secondary research, lots of going out and talking to friends, families, um, survey work across the internet to really learn as much as we could about the category. Yeah. You know, um, and how much, how do you feel like that played into your ability to raise money? Why, why don't you tell us about what fundraising, fundraising has been like and any lessons you feel like everybody else could learn from, from the process for you guys? Absolutely. So, you know, we, we went through the process of raising both the seed and a series A round over the last two years. And, you know, I think the lessons learned are really specific to the stage that you're at. So, you know, if you're raising a friends and family or a seed round, you're raising off of, off of a vision and off of a team. And what you're selling is, is the dream, essentially what, what you think can happen with the business, where, what you think is going to happen with the category and why you're the right team to execute on that, which is paramount to, you know, any, successful venture. When you're raising at the Series A round or later, you're really looking more at a metrics-driven discussion. So talking through, do you really understand what are the core competencies and problems within your, within your company, within your industry? You know, what does it mean to acquire a customer? How does that affect everything of your margin profile and getting super deep into the weeds? But ultimately, you know, the, the advice that I would give is one, obviously you need to know your numbers, although you can't be so into your numbers that you sort of lose sight of the bigger vision discussion. But the second is really making sure that you portray a confident founding team that is, you know, has the right set of skill sets, but also has hired well and can prove that you check boxes outside of just, um, you know, thinking really deeply about the metrics, essentially. Yeah. So um, thinking about this, you know, you went to Princeton, did your degree at Wharton business degree. You spent a little bit of time in investment banking. You'd, you'd helped at a you know, previous startup. Um, when you think about, you know, so your, your, um, series a here raising 7.4 million, um, when it comes to actual sales skills and relating to people and not just showing up with, Hey, this is all about me. We want to cram our idea down your throat. Any thoughts about, you know, characteristics you feel like set people apart of, um, you know, the salespeople that are really successful versus the guys that show up and throw up? Yeah, I mean, I think it comes down to understanding that these are, you know, from a from an investment standpoint, that you know, you're you're a person and you're talking to another person, right? It's not it's not just about um, thinking really deeply about again about numbers, about trying to just regurgitate facts and data 
But it's really, you know, like essentially you have to strike up a real conversation and a real relationship with, with your investors or your potential investors because what investors are thinking about, it's not only the capital that they're giving you, but they're, they're going to work with you essentially. You know, they, a lot of them join your boards. If they don't join your boards, they're intimately involved in your company and its success and people invest in people. Like there's just no other way to say it. And so, you know, I would encourage people to not get too overly nervous. Of course, you need to prepare, but you don't want to prepare, <laughs> prepare to the point where you come in and you're sort of jittery from wanting to just regurgitate every single fact that you remembered from the deck that you made two years ago. It's more conversational than that. Yeah. So thinking about this of like the, the real human to human connection, um, how does that show up in your marketing and, and you know, lead generation? Yeah. So, you know, when we built Helix, one of the, it wasn't just about building custom made or, or tailored products. It was really about tailoring experiences as well. Um, one of the biggest pain points in our category, again, is really around the buying experience and why it feels so incredibly impersonal. Um, you feel like you walk into a store, it's sterile, you're just another sale or commission to the salesman. And so we really wanted to create you know, a system where customers felt welcome, they trusted the brand, they liked the brand, and they understood what we were doing. And that manifests itself both in our marketing and in our legion. And so, you know, from a marketing and on-site perspective, we look to create a really cohesive, um, co cohesive sort of customer journey. As customers go through the funnel, we encourage people to talk to us. So unlike a lot of companies out there who are sort of hiding their phone number in you know the the third page of the FAQ section where you can almost ever find it, we're really you know we elevate that number. We want you to call. We want you to live chat us. We want you to email us because we understand that this is a confusing category and it's it's expensive, it's time consuming, and it's important. It's really the you know the most functional piece of furniture you own in your home, and so we really want to elevate that customer experience side of it while also making sure that we're showing relevant content to every single customer at an individual basis, and so. We're obsessed with creating the best experience each customer can have, and that you know that shows up in the way that we market and, and lead gen essentially. And and you know besides people checking you out on Instagram or Facebook or just coming right to helixsleep.com, what are the what are the strategies or what what have you guys um, really focused on for that initial getting somebody to start the buyer's journey? Is it pay-per-click or what what is you what have you guys found yeah you know i think you know when we launched as most young companies do and i and i would say most company young companies should we were pretty solely focused on the digital channels they're just a lot easier to track you can spend less and see more for your buck initially at least um and so we were super heavy in all the digital you know across all the digital platforms uh whether that was search or um, social or content or whatever it might be uh, we've moved offline as well, and so you know we we do we're pretty heavy into radio, podcast, out of home, that type of stuff, just because we've you know we've realized that there's other channels that have a lot of scale and are really good channels for awareness. Essentially, you know, letting people know, hey, we exist. Um, you know, we we have a big challenge, right? Not only are we challenged to tell people that you can buy a mattress online, we challenge to tell people that you can buy a mattress that's personalized for you, which is sort of a new concept. And the third is that we're, we're, we're a company, Helix Sleep, and you should, you should try it out from us, right? And so with that three-pronged challenge in mind, we really look at the funnel as one continuous segment. It's not sort of super channel specific. We understand that each channel assists in every single other channel. Sure. 
um, you know, thinking about that, um, I'm thinking about this idea of, you know, you need to start a process in a way that's going to engender that trust, especially since, you know, such a large portion of the population probably hasn't bought, bought a bet online. Right. Yep. Um, I'm just kind of want to go back to this human to human thing that you were talking about. Um, knowing that you need people are so busy, whether they're driving past a billboard or whether they're, you know, scrolling through their Facebook feed or however you're trying to get that initial attention, right. So you can get them into your journey. Um, do you have any philosophy about like doing something that grabs enough attention to interrupt their busy day? So they'll start the journey, but still keeping that human to human, like non clickbait type of thing where it's starting the trust right from the beginning. Yeah, that's a really good question um, because I, I hear you, and we see a lot of companies out there that are super focused on the clickbaity type stuff, and so they get a lot of clicks, but they don't, you know, it doesn't really translate into into sales necessarily. Um, the way that we focus a lot of our our creative across the different advertisements is making sure that we're we're super direct, so you understand who we are, what we do, and and why we believe it's important. And what you know, one of the core tenants at Helix is to essentially celebrate individuality, right? Our entire ethos is around people are different and that's why we wear different clothing. It's why we have different diets, different exercise routines. And our goal is really to bring that to sleep. Essentially, we sleep differently and that should be something that is celebrated, not you know something that is sort of washed away with one size or one type for everyone. Um, and we, we reflect that in, in the copy. So you know we look for copy, we look for ad creative that with the dual aim of being direct enough that if you read it, you, you understand what we do, who we are and where to go, but also resonates with you at, at a personal level, essentially, regardless of who you are. Yeah. Um, we talked about this before, but, um, thinking about bringing that internal and how you grow a team and how you get a team to not just check the box, but bring that extra bit of effort that you can't put on a checklist as a boss how does that translate inside the company or what do you feel like have you guys have had wins internally for, for bringing, you know, getting staff to want to bring their A game to work? Absolutely. So, you know, I think it starts with hiring. So you hear this a lot from founders, but hiring is a really, really vital part of building a successful company and continuing to build one. And, you know, and it's an area where, frankly, we are continuously trying to improve on and, and learn more. And, you know, specifically within hiring, it's around building a process around how do you hire? Which attributes are important? How do you think about hard skills versus soft skills versus culture? How do you think about candidates versus other candidates and really trying to understand that entire process? Because especially when you're a small company, the first couple hires or the first you know handful of hires that you have, regardless of if they're very senior or very junior, are, are vital to building the culture. Um, you know, we about a year, a little over a year ago, we're a very, very small team. You know, three founders and two or three more employees, so six total people. We're a team of just shy of thirty people now, and and building that up certainly had its challenges. And you know, we continue to learn and and try to improve. But our goal is to make sure that we, people know that one, they're here working for a, a cause, and that cause is essentially bringing tailored sleep to people, and like directly the product that they're selling is helping people sleep better, which is helping them live better every single day. And we track numbers like that. We're super obsessed with NPS and, you know, our customer satisfaction rate. We're really obsessed with the, you know, we, we do things like look at the number of hours of, of nights slept on our beds and stuff like that. And making sure that regardless of if you work in customer experience or marketing or you're a developer or you work in operations or whatever it might be, 
you, you don't lose sight that we're helping people essentially and that there's a real mission behind what we're doing. And that definitely resonates with people along with you know, your more general startup things around making sure that the culture is strong, people are happy, you know, happy hours, stuff like that. You know, you, you mentioned NPS. Um, when, when you guys do Net Promoter Score, is it at checkout or when, wh- how have you guys implemented that? Uh, so we do it at a bunch of different places. So we look at it across uh, the immediate sale, um, the 30-day, and then like longer. So we, we actually do it at different time points hmm. just so that – because we capture different things, right? So essentially – the problem with looking at NPS at one specific time point is, you know, NPS at checkout is, did you essentially like the website? Did you like the messaging? Do you like the brand? NPS at, you know, later on, once someone's had chance to use the product, whether, you know, it's a mattress or whatever else, is more of a product question. And so we are hyper obsessed with collecting that data across a lot of different time points, actually. And by the way, anybody who doesn't is not familiar with Net Promoter Score, you should really grab the book, The Ultimate Question 2.0 by folks over at Bain Consulting. It's excellent and uh, just cuts through the crap on so many <laughs> terrible customer surveys that annoy your customers. It boils it just down to one question. Um, yep. You know, so I want to talk about this this staff thing a little more. You know, so at Mylan, our consulting firm, we've got, you know, guys from the classified units of special operations command. These people are obsessed about selection, right? They put people through yeah. months of it. But uh, one of our clients right now, big public company in the, in the building space, they're doing a thing where uh, on their front line, they're, they're just doing like, <laughs> it's more like tryouts than, than interviews because they just have had so many people quit on them. They're just paying people, hey, come start, you know, your interview is four hours of actual work with us and we give you a gift certificate. And if that works out, come out tomorrow. And they, they're like doing some of these things ahead of time before they're even doing background checks and stuff like that. Um, so my question to you, I guess, is knowing that there's so many people that can talk a good game in an interview, um, you've identified the traits that you want, but do you have any insight of your methodologies for separating the good interviewers from the people that actually have those traits? Yeah, that's, you know, it's a fascinating question. And the, the process that the company you're talking about is, it's interesting. You know, it really, really is interesting. What, what we do here is a couple of things. So, you know, we go in recognizing that when you're hiring for a role, you're not hiring whether the person, you know, you're not hiring for a good interviewer, essentially. And so that's one way of saying that what you, what you were saying before, essentially, there are some people who are really good at interviewing, but wouldn't necessarily be good on the job. And there's the opposite of that, too. There's some people who are really bad at interviewing, but, but would really be good on the job as well. And so, you know, we, we recognize that and try as hard as we can not to include the quality of the 30 minutes, one hour, two hours, whatever it is, interview in the ultimate decision process from like a logistics standpoint. Um, we tend to make sure that everyone that we interview gets interviewed by a broad range of people. We make sure that we ask different questions across different areas. And so people are really getting a fair chance to be compared to one another. And then uh, we generally, depending on the role, we generally do give some sort of exercise. So something with a little bit more teeth to it where you can show us your work quality, um, show us your understanding of wherever you know it is that we're hiring you in the company. And then finally, we require everyone to do background checks. So we do, um, you know, we do ask for references and we talk to people about performers and stuff like that. But you know, it, it's hard. I will admit it's, it's very hard and it's something that we're certainly open to new and innov- innovative ways of, of thinking about. Yeah. Um, so thinking a bit more about what your staff have to do, I mean, you guys are not a traditional factory with a traditional brick and mortar, you know, your e-commerce, you're shipping stuff all over the world, all over the country. 
Um, can you talk a bit about some of the headaches of, of optimizing a system like that? From a staff perspective or just yeah, from just a business perspective? From a business perspective of you know, getting a system and, and having the staff turn it into a well-oiled machine and you know, iterating to get your efficiencies and like where, where is the stuff manufactured? How long does it take to get to somebody? What's shipping like? Yeah, no, definitely. You know, it's it's interesting. So e-commerce companies today don't have to do all of it internally, right? Like we don't have to, or you don't have to make the product. You don't have to be the company that ships it. There's a lot of options out there that allow for companies to scale with a lot less capital invested and sort of be able to grow and focus on their core competencies, whether those be brand or market or whatever. Um, but it certainly does come with its challenges, and you know, you got to make sure those sure, <laughs> those vendors are doing what they promised. Absolutely, you know, and so that has to do with quality assurance processes from a manufacturing standpoint. It has to do with really staying on top of your suppliers, staying on top of your your vendors, um, understanding your, your your shipping and and all those metrics. Um, and, and it's quite difficult. And, you know, we've built an internal tool in the company to essentially help us with that because without structuring it in a very robust way, we would ha- we just wouldn't have insight into it because you, you literally, you know, when you, when you lose the ability to be the single person that talks to the customer, puts the product in the box, puts the tape on and sends it, you know, sends it out the door, you, you know, you can scale like that's not a scalable model. But you also lose grips on a lot of these things. And so the key is to just sort of set processes in place that disincentivize poor, poor behavior, essentially. Sure. So, you know, um, our customers, our listeners of the show really love hearing the war stories, you know. And so someone could listen to you and say, well, of course things work for you, Adam. You, you raised seven and a half million dollars. You went to Princeton and Wharton. Um, you know, what about mere mortals like me? You know, you could never understand how hard things are for me to figure out. If someone was saying that to you, what, what would be your response about any of the like, oh, you wouldn't believe how this got messed up the first time and that's, how we, that's why we built this into our system or any of the, any of the growing pains, any war stories? Yeah, I mean, for sure. And, and, you know, and I would reiterate that you know, raising, raising money isn't, isn't the end, right? And a lot of people think it is, but we you know, today are still struggling with, with real problems, right? And we still have real solutions that we need to find in order for this company to get to the next level. But, you know, I would reiterate what you're saying. Like we certainly went through a ton of, of wartime issues, you know, things like orders getting sent to the wrong people, um, the, the entire back end just shutting down and us having to just deal with it by hand. Essentially we were, we were handwriting thank you notes to every single customer when we, when, when we first <laughs> launched, you know, it really, it really was stressful. And, you know, when you start to, spend money on marketing, it's really inefficient. And you end up spending a lot of money in bad areas. And the reason you do that is for the learning, not for the efficiency initially. But you really have to swallow the fact that you're just sort of burning money on fire. <laughs> and it, and it's scary. It really, really is scary. And it's a place where we see a lot of startups get hung up on is, you know, someone comes to me and says, I, I really want to start testing out a marketing channel so we're going to put $500 into Facebook. And then they do that, and then it doesn't work. And then they say, okay, Facebook doesn't work for us. And that's just not how you really should ap- approach that problem. And But the alternative is that you have to just be willing to put more chips on the table, essentially. And so you know, I think from a war story perspective, we, we've seen a lot, whether it's been um, you know, issues with the site, issues with sending wrong product, uh, late nights. And, you know, when we launched, it was five of us working out of a room for like one person 
and you know late nights it, it's not an easy ride for sure but you know it just has to do with the conviction to want to keep growing essentially yeah um so one of the things we're really interested in is how experts become experts and uh before we started the interview you were talking about being a part of an incubator um as far as mentors or people that you look up to in life um both from a how to treat others and from a business perspective, I'd uh, love to hear anybody you look up to. Maybe let's start on the business side of just whether it's somebody at the incubator or other entrepreneurs or people that you feel like have maybe paved a path you've benefited from. Is there anybody that comes to mind? Yeah, definitely. So, you know, I think someone that comes to mind for me is while I was at the incubator, we, we launched a company internally. It was a through venture between the company I was at, a company called LRMR, which is LeBron James's marketing arm, and another company. And the founder of that third company uh, was a guy named Warren Stroll. He's actually a very successful uh, entrepreneur, started a bunch of companies, some successful, some not, wrote a book on entrepreneurship called Starting It Up, which is a fantastic read. And you know, he really... I knew him and worked with him at a much earlier time in my career, and it was immensely helpful to see with the way that he dealt with people, um, to see what you know what his response was at times of, of worry and how positive he he really viewed and how much he cared. He just deeply cared about the products that he sold, and it showed me that you know you can't really half you can't really half anything. Um, and he was certainly a, a real mentor of mine. Yeah. Um, sounds like he might be for both categories. And any examples come to mind of a tense situation that you were impressed with the way he handled it or just the way you seem to care about people? Any specific examples come to mind? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, he – it was an interesting company because because it was the three-way venture. It was a little bit disjointed. Um, people weren't all located in the same office. There were people from different walks of life. And he just really did a good job of, of weaving those separate people together um, so yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if I have a specific example just cause it was a couple of years ago yeah. or a bunch of years ago, but it was just, you know, he really did a good job at making sure that people understood the vision and really getting people excited and, and confident about what we were doing. Sure. Uh, you know, another question we'd like to ask us, uh, with our charity child rescue, trying to prevent child sex trafficking, any advice, uh, as far as how to get more people involved in protecting kids of just, if you were us, what you, or if you were our advisor, what you would tell us to do? Yeah, you know, I think with something like that where the message is so – it's so on point, right? Like it's something where many people feel strongly about that. And even if you don't feel strongly about that, it's something that you definitely agree with, obviously. And so, you know, I think what sometimes gets lost in nonprofits is understanding that acquiring a supporter is is no different than acquiring a customer. And, you know, that means understanding behavior, understanding how to segment different types of people. So, you know, there, you guys must look at your, your cost, your, um, supporter base and not everyone's the same, right? Some people are every year donating a lot of money. Other people are a little bit more casual about it. Some people are on your email list, but haven't yet donated and sort of understanding how to treat all of those different people through various creative, various marketing messages, email campaigns. You know, I, I really do believe that you can apply a lot of the, the for-profit tactics to try to convert sales into you know try to convert people in your database to, to the next step of what you know what you would want whether that's someone who is sort of interested and has given you their email but hasn't yes yet donated or it's someone who's donated once but you think you can convert that person in, into a more active member maybe a volunteer maybe whatever it might be so I you know I would just encourage you and you know the other nonprofits out there out there to really think about it that way no I think that's great advice I think um, 
it's very easy to put it all in a category called donors instead of yeah. instead of taking the time to separate out and treat them like individuals, right? Exactly. Um, well, thinking of thinking about uh, your career, thinking about the growth of Helix and, and the success it's it is enjoying, um, are there any stories that you think um, from your career so far and from building this business so far that illustrate a point? Like, is there is there some concept that's like you feel like Man, if there's one thing I could share with people who are who are trying to get after it and and make a difference in the world, this is the point and here's a story to emphasize it. I know I'm kind of putting you on the spot there. Yeah, no. I mean, I think one story that comes to mind is when we were starting to think through Helix, you know, we came into it, none of us had a, a mattress background essentially. And so, we did, you know, we did what most people do. We did some research, we talked to friends, family, outside people, inside people. But it got to the point where we really needed to, to educate ourselves and really needed to, to push the envelope. And so, you know, kind of funny, unique story that, that we actually came up on was we were, we were researching um, the category and just trying to understand how people thought about customizing sleep and how sleep systems interact with bodies and getting behind the science. And we found a PhD dissertation on uh, essentially that topic, like essentially like the seminal PhD dissertation on how to think through optimizing a, a sleep structure for for people essentially, um, and you know in that dissertation we saw a little email at the bottom, and so we emailed the guy, he responded. Um, we got on a Skype call with him about a week later, chatted a little bit more, uh, found out that he actually uh, lived in Europe, and then we ended up literally two weeks later flying out to Europe, meeting with him, and striking up a deal where we essentially co-developed the technology for. Um, for Helix and, and the nuggets of Helix. And, you know, the point that I want to illustrate there is that, you know, you really have to take the risk and be willing to invest in, in the concept, right? It doesn't just stop at the research that you find online or, you know, five conversations and you think you're ready to go. Like when, when an opportunity presents itself, sometimes it means you got to get on the plane <laughs> or, you know, in our case, or in other cases, it means you have to invest a little bit of money or you have to really take take the leap. So, you know, that's, that's a story that comes to mind. Countless other stories around really focusing on what's important, making sure the founders have the right dynamics, all that kind of stuff. But that's, that's one that comes to mind. That's great. Well, listen, um, we appreciate all the time you spent with us today. Any parting wisdom? I, you know, I, I really get the sense you're a process guy and, and you know, the way that you think about customers, the way you think about the business systems. Are there any uh, books or, or websites or classes or blogs or anything that you feel like are kind of speak in your language when it comes to the rest of us who maybe want to become more like that? Absolutely. So, you know, the book that I generally give out that I just think is, is probably the best book for, for young founders is uh, Ben Horowitz's The Hard Thing About Hard Things. <laughs> uh, I'm sh you've probably heard it on the show before. Um, really, really good popular book, but it's, it's really the, one of the only books I've read that felt like it was written for me. It wasn't just sort of a general business book. It was sort of like exactly for the moment in time that I, that I was reading it, I was living it. And it really forces you to think through, you know, the, the stuff that you don't really hear about, you know, in, in a normal class, let's say in business school or in a normal, um, interview or whatever it might be. So I, I would really recommend that. I think that First Round has some really solid content on their blog um, specific to, to different topics, whether it be sort of like customer centricity or develop, hiring developers or whatever it might be. I think those are two really good resources. Just firstround.com? 
Yeah, so it's first it's first rounds uh, the VC and they have a, a blog. Um, I, I don't know what the URL is, but it's if you Google first round blog, it'd be right there. That's great. Well, listen again. Appreciate your time. Uh, obviously, anybody who wants to get a better night's sleep should be going to Helix Sleep and and checking you guys out. Yeah. And, uh, thanks for sharing everything today. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. We're going to cut off part one of the interview there in the interest of time. We've had feedback that people would rather have 20 to 30 minute episodes. So we're going to break the interviews in half. Please check back tomorrow for part two of the interview. And as always, come to iCollective.co for show notes. And to learn more about child rescue, go to the menu and, and look at our child rescue page and see if that's something that you'd like to get involved with. Thanks for listening. The Starlight Lounge presents An Evening with the Progressive Box. Oh, the moon, yeah. That's Hugo, tickling the ivories. He just saved by bundling home and auto with Progressive. Gonna finally buy a ring for that gal of yours, Hugo? Send her my condolences. Hi-oh! This next one's for you, too. There's a burglar in my heart. Thank you. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Discounts not available in all states or situations.